Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. you know me fairly well, you also know that I am an unapologetic apologist for the works of Stephen King. In 2009, Stephen King authored a novel entitled Under the Dome, which was later made into a lackluster series on uh, Amazon Prime. That aside, and my bitterness about it aside, uh, the plot is very significant, at least in relationship to our passage today from Ephesians chapter 2. In the novel, there's a small town in Maine, of course, called Chester's Mill. And suddenly, and without explanation, this small town was enveloped in a a large dome, a force field-like structure. And people outside of Chester's Mill could see into the town, and those who were inside Chester's Mill could see out, but nobody could break the barrier. They tried numerous things. They tried uh, hitting it with a sledgehammer, shooting it with a shotgun, attacking it with ballistic missiles. But No success was had. Later we discover, a bit of a spoiler alert, that the dome was constructed by aliens who are trying to create a new civilization. But that aside, uh, what's fascinating about the plot and how it develops is that two different uh, communities and cultures were forming, one inside the dome and one outside the dome. That is, a small population of insiders and a vast population of outsiders Well, let me liken this to our text from Ephesians chapter 2, because Israel very much found itself under a dome of sorts. Abraham's empire uh, was designed, designed to be a separatist movement. Uh, It was designed that way through what we know as the law. The law made Israel a separate kind of people. And then many years later, after Israel was given that separatist law, we have Jesus entering the picture, and he demolishes that dome and cracks it wide open and reunites the world with Israel and Israel with the world. And so I want to talk about Paul's logic here. I want to speak about it in two ways. First, those divided by the dome, and second, uh, the demolition of the dome. So let me talk first about those who are divided by this dome structure. Two groups. Paul's really interested in two groups. I invite you to take up your bulletin. We're going to work our way through the text, through this important material, and hopefully we'll glean something we can carry with us when we leave. So this is from verse 11. Therefore, just an important word in in biblical study, right? It means that he is basing what he is now saying on a previous argument or line of reasoning, Paul just got done talking about how everybody is over their heads in terms of sin and trouble and death and the powers of profoundly negative appetites, and we need to be rescued, which we are rescued by a loving grace that comes to us and not because of any of our deservings or earnings. So that was where he was coming from. And now he's saying, therefore, with all that in mind, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, to put it rather squarely. Uh, 
Well, I want to begin by thinking about Paul's relationship to this little Turkish church. It's wild when you think about it, especially within a first century context. It's a very odd thing that Paul, a devout Jew, so devout that he was among the Brahmin caste, if you will, of Israel, those people that took the law extremely seriously, even punishing malefactors when they disobeyed it. So Paul would become a pen pal to this Gentile place, to these Ephesian Gentiles, but they had no uh, racial connections to Paul in any way. And yet there he was uh, becoming their pen pal and not to excoriate them for being Gentiles, but he's writing to them sweetly and positively and encouragingly, grounding them in eternal truths that will help them. Uh, not just in this life, but of course, in the life to come. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us because we live in what we often assume is a hyperlinked world. We're all connected to each other and we know what's happening in the Sudan or we could know. All we have to do is look it up online. But back then, they didn't live in such a hyper-connected world. Uh, And Jews didn't speak to Gentiles and Gentiles didn't speak to Jews. When they were speaking, it was bad because it usually meant a war was about to start. And here is Paul reaching out to them in this letter. I don't know of any other Jew who would write to Gentiles in the way that Paul did. Uh, Because Jews lived in the first century with a massive, massive barrier between themselves and the Gentile world. You know, it's interesting how ancient people used to think of nations, you know. Like we think that the world is filled with a multiplicity of nations, many of them having their own distinctive language or culture or contribution or food and so forth. That isn't the way that first century Jews thought of the world. They didn't see the world. They knew that nations existed, but they saw the world as really made up of two groups, the chosen and the unchosen, those who are in the covenant and those who are outside the covenant, the Jews and the Gentiles. You have the chosen 1% and the forsaken 99%. That was their understanding of the world. And it certainly wasn't helped, that kind of understanding, wasn't helped by the fact that the 99% didn't treat the 1% very well most of the time. Uh, Israel had a very beleaguered and difficult and strained history, as you may know. They very rarely had any freedom. They almost always experienced the, the boot of their oppressor on their necks. You know? And this is why, I mean, let's just chronicle the history very briefly. First, there was Egypt and then Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. You know, I mean, it's not great. It's not great. It's, they lived this bitter existence because of these other nations. And so the, there was an animosity that was building between those groups. Uh, and in, in fact, many Jewish people would use derogatory labels for Gentiles. They would call them dogs, right? These subhuman creatures. Or they would call them the uncircumcision. And that was, by the way, a slam. The uncircumcision. I think it's really weird to label somebody in that way, right? Have you ever insulted anybody in that way? No, because it would be really weird and uncomfortable if you did that. Uh, So why that label? I mean, who cares about some ancient ritual regarding genitalia? Uh, Why does the Bible speak so much about circumcision, especially in the New Testament? Well, if you understand your Old Testament history, you'll also understand why this is so important. And just a brief sketch. Um, circumcision was part of a a covenant. 
In fact, when you made a covenant, which is a treaty with somebody in the Old Testament, when you made a covenant, the Hebrew is not that you would make a covenant, but you would cut a covenant or slice a covenant with somebody. And that goes back to the circumcision ritual. And here's why that was done. It was done to show and to remind people that they were connected to Abraham, to God's chosen patriarch that you are part of the family of Abraham. And so you would be marked in an intimate way that also had to do with the theme of progeny or children. And that's why you were marked there in that way as a permanent physical reminder that you belonged to someone and not just to Abraham, but to the God behind Abraham. He was a covenant making God and he has entered into covenant with you, which means included in that covenant, you have the great revelatory material, the great wisdom of the Jewish culture. Uh, You as a Jew under this covenant feel things that other people don't always feel. And you think things that other people don't always think you're part of this vast conspiracy of God in the world that you are his select chosen people and beneficiaries of all of the insight that comes in the Old Testament. And that's why Paul can write to his Gentile Turkish audience and say in verse 12, remember who you were, you were, all of you Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise and having no hope and without God in the world. That is, you were outsiders. You really didn't belong. You were not in the club. You were not invited. You did not get a golden ticket from Willy Wonka. Nobody wanted you to come to the wedding. It's the theme of division. There's a few under the dome, the chosen, many outside the dome. This text is about insiders and outsiders, those who have and those who have not, the chosen, the unchosen, the accepted, and the forsaken. Now, this is a unique situation within salvation history, but we've all experienced Uh, similar things in our own lives to one degree or another, right? You know for a few moments of your life what it feels like to be an insider, but much of your life is spent on the outside looking in. And here's the truth. Even the people that you think are insiders, the people that you wish you could saddle up with, you know, and attach yourself to, those very people that whom you think are insiders, they don't feel like insiders at all most of the time. Uh, In fact, they think, the insiders think, there's still a secret cabal of insiders somewhere that they wish they could be a part of to really be the decision makers, the movers, and the shakers, but they've not been invited to the insiders insider club. Uh, But many of us have have felt through the years like we're on the outs, that we don't really fit in, that we don't belong, that we, we don't have enough education to be with the intellectual Illuminati, and we don't have enough... Uh, you know, artistry to hang out with the artists and we don't have good bonds with our families. And so we can't really express ourselves to them and we don't really feel included, truth be told. And and we were estranged from some friend that, that had abandoned us years ago because we made a mistake and we're not talking to them. And so we're on the outs. But everybody here knows what it's like to be excised. Everybody knows what it's like to not get the invitation, to not get the golden ticket. Well, that's how the Gentiles were. They were estranged. But then something happened. A great man arrived on the scene, a great man with great conceptions and, and who was uh, filled, of course, with God. He, he was going to be able to do something that nobody else could do. And so the God-man, Jesus Christ, enters the, enters the dome of Israel and ends up demolishing the dome, demolishing the separation. And so I want to talk about now the end of the dome or the demolition of the dome in verse 13. Please read along with me. But now in Christ Jesus, 
You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So first Paul is recognizing, and he does this twice, there's hostility between these two groups. They don't naturally love each other or have an affinity. There's hostility. So how does God get rid of the hostility? He does something odd, something that I would regard as unpredictable. He abolishes the law. That's what it says. The law was a barrier to the unity between Jews and Gentiles, and so God abolishes the law. Now, what is the law? Well, the law is, of course, a treaty or a covenant that God makes through Moses with the Israelite people but the law, if I want to put it more simply than that, or less theological than that, the law is a culture maker. The law makes a culture. The law inculcates certain norms within society and forms that society by those norms. And, and, and the law seeks to create out of Israel a unique culture, a culture that you can't really find anywhere else. The same thing can be true in a smaller way uh, related to our own nation's constitution. It is intended to create a unique culture. <coughs> But the law, the law creates in some ways a segregation between Israel and the rest of the world in a whole bunch of ways. Consider the theology of the law, that which the law taught about how worship ought to be directed to one God and one God only. Already that sets you apart from every other nation in the world. We either thought that God was sort of a vague thing like energy, but certainly not personal or super personal. Or that there were many gods that were fighting constantly because they understood the heavens to be terrorized by different interests. Well, Jewish theology taught monotheism. No, there is one center, one enduring center that is at equilibrium with himself. Right? That's a new idea. Sets Israel aside. Also, the politics of Israel taught in the law about how kings and rulers and judges ought to behave themselves. That is... Israel, unlike the other nations, understood that the authorities, the earthly authorities, were not avatars. They were not little deities. They were not incarnations of the heavens. They were just as human as you, just given a particular authority for a limited time. That sits Israel aside. Also, the morality that's in the law, summarized, of course, in the Ten Commandments, uh, that morality was given uh, to ethically cultivate a group of people so that they would not become barbarous like the nations that bordered them. Also, the worship of Israel marked them as separate and distinctive. They had a particular way of understanding sacrificial rites. Most ancient people engaged with sacrifice either to bribe the gods, thinking the gods would eat the sacrifice, or to, to expel demons from particular places. Israel sacrificed too, but it was understood that sacrifices were, were offered because of human sin. That is, the sin of the person making the sacrifice. That set Israel aside. Also, Israelite diet, because you couldn't eat everything you wanted. No shellfish for you. No bacon cheeseburgers, no matter how much you want one. The food is divided between clean and unclean foods. And so you could tell just by one's diet who was Jew and who was not. Also, clothing. You weren't able, according to the law, if you were a Jew, to mix fabric. Instead, your dress had to be distinctive so that you could tell if a Jewish person were walking toward you from 50 yards away just because of how... Uh, because of how they dressed, what they wore. Also, marriage laws 
you were not allowed to marry pagan Gentiles within ancient Israelite law. Sabbath separated Jew and Gentile. The Sabbath meant that you would spend a seventh of your life resting. Oh, if we only, you know, took that a little more seriously. Um, A seventh of your life resting, which put you um, at a distance from the experience of most other people within those days. And also holidays. The Jewish uh, calendar was punctuated by many, many different holidays in which you would remember God's actions on your behalf. Like Passover, for example, where God liberated a group of people from taskmasters in Egypt. But these are all bits of the law, right? Morals and an understanding of kings, rules about what you should eat and not eat and how you should worship. All of these things functioned as a segregating dome that kept Jews and Gentiles apart from one another. This is why, by the way, the Old Testament wasn't rich in missionary endeavors. You know, Habakkuk didn't go on like a a two-week mission trip to Haiti. You know, it wasn't a thing, Uh, right? The the Israelite prophets, in fact, were almost all of them in-house speaking to Israel about Israelite problems or Judah about um, Judean problems. The only one exception is Jonah, who was called to go uh, to Nineveh, uh, though he didn't want to. And there were reasons that he didn't want to, in part because no other prophet had ever been asked to do that before. But he's the exception that proves the rule. Um, Israel was to be a distinctive culture, to quote the Old Testament, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, one that by example and by separation would become a light to the world. That's what the law did. It created a dome separating these two groups, Jews on the inside, Gentiles on the out. Now it begs the question, why? Why did God put a dome over Israel, segregating it for a season? Why the law? Well, it's very complicated, but let me boil it down in less than a minute. I think I can do it. Point one, the law preserved Israel's distinctive contribution and voice. They had their own revelation and ideas which shaped existence for many, many people, including us. Point two, The law made Israel an example to the world because Israel failed to keep the law from the heart and with any consistency. And we are exactly the same. It isn't that they were worse than us. They're just not better than us. We're all the same. And they exemplify failure under the law. Uh, Billy Graham uh, once said it. You know, he, he always says that external pressure doesn't cause people to change. He, in fact, in his great southern accent, Billy once said that there are no iron balls on any prison cell that will ever change the heart of a prisoner. <laughs> and it's true. It's true. You can't change people through force or coercion. That's not how people change. They may act like they've changed, but they're not changing. Uh, so the, Israel made, the law made Israel an example to the world by giving them a standard they couldn't keep. And third, the law prepared the world for the Messiah. Because the law demanded that men and women become righteous, and Jesus was the only one who did, the righteous man, according to the law. The law demanded sacrifice for sin, and Jesus was that sacrifice. Uh, So Jesus, in his earthly ministry, said that he did not come to uh, essentially push away the law, but to fulfill it. And on the cross, he fulfills it by being the man who kept the law and the man who sacrificed his life for those who could not. And this is why in Romans 10, verse 4, Paul can write very boldly, Christ is the end of the law. 
Uh, Christians, of course, can glean moral wisdom from the law. That's why we even repeat the Ten Commandments throughout Lent and Advent and church. Those morals are repeated in the New Testament too, but it's important for us to remember that the law is not our covenant nor our final authority. You are under the new covenant, the new covenant of Jesus' blood, which, thank God, according to Jeremiah 32, is not like the old covenant that God gave to Israel. So, this is Paul's point, that enmity between Jew and Gentile dies whenever the barrier that separated those groups is gone. And when the law, that segregating covenant, is removed, something miraculous occurs. You take two groups and you make one group. Two men, you make one man. One new man, says St. Paul numerous times. One new man. Notice God does not make one new man out of Jews and Gentiles by bringing Gentiles under the dome, under the old law. Instead, God gets rid of the dome. And in Christ, there is therefore no Jew nor Greek. No Jew nor Gentile anymore. No insiders or outsiders, no circumcised or uncircumcised, we're all the same. In other words, what brings God's peace to both groups and unites them is not a moral code, not a bestseller, not an elected official, not an angry resolution from the United Nations, not Netflix, it's Jesus. Jesus, he is our peace. This is Paul's vision that Jews in Jerusalem and Turkish people in Ephesus can laugh together, cry together, eat together, worship together, and be friends. That's his vision of a new humanity, because we are all loved, all thought of, all chosen. You know, it's, it's, it's really something to think about being chosen. When I watch late night Christian TV, which I want to do every time I need a little, like, the, the Germans call it schadenfreude, right? Or you, a little pain, it's good for you in some ways. Well, I watch Christian TV when I need that. And, uh, and if you watch late at night, they become increasingly obsessed with the apocalypse. Like the later you go, like at 11 o'clock, they're really in that zone. And they think that the nation of Israel, which is, by the way, very secular, but the nation of Israel has enormous prophetic significance. Some of them like to raise money for little projects. And, and somebody's very interested in rebuilding the temple on the Temple Mount and because they're the chosen people. But I don't think they took this passage seriously. One new man, one new man. He brings the Jews and the Gentiles together and he creates out of them one new man. And so if you want to know what chosenness looks like, find the nearest mirror and you'll see chosenness. It's you right now with all of your problems. You, that's the one that God wants, regardless of your DNA. Um, it's interesting. I, I really like John Wimber. He was the founder of the Vineyard Movement and he's not perfect, uh, you know, but he's, he's really intelligent. Uh, and he, he said this once about, about Jesus. He said, by any measure, Jesus lacks good taste and refined sensibilities because he'll take anybody. He'll take anybody and make them one new man. But, but here's the rub. If he takes anybody, uh, we then will have to live with all those other people that he accepts. And that's hard. That's hard. Yeah. So, like, people get very nervous, you know, with Calvinism. Have you noticed that? Um, from time to time. But that's uh, most people that hate Calvin have never read, like, one paragraph that he's ever written. The same with Karl Barth. People that hate Karl Barth, they've never read Karl Barth. Um, but, but if I were, like, if I were, like, I would be far more um, spleeny than John Calvin. Like, I would really restrict, restrict the number. 
I really would, because I would only want people in heaven who like me and who agree with me. So there's like eight people that I would want there. But I'm doubtful of about like five of them. So I think it's three. I think it's just three. But... But right, but isn't it beautiful that God doesn't have my brain, that Jesus doesn't act on my impulses, and then he's far more generous than you are, and far more generous than I am, that the redemption that he has given the world is, is vast and wild, and, and he, uh, by getting rid of the law that separates the Jew and the Gentile, he brings all of these people into God's family, which was, by the way, promised to the very patriarch who founded the Jewish nation. Whenever God called Abraham to do something wild and have a lot of babies, he said to Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the families and all the nations of the world. Everybody gets better because of you. Uh, And so now that's fulfilled in Jesus. So let me conclude now uh, with a word about domes and a word about their demise. So regarding domes, uh, we all live with them. You live in a dome. I live in a dome, usually of our own making and our own desiring. Now, we don't live under the dome of the law of Moses, but we still live under these other little segregated protectorates right? with their tribalism and their like idiosyncrasies and linguistic rules and taboos, these force fields that we think help to defend us. And when I was working on this sermon, I asked people what their force fields were. What is your dome? What does it look like? I got fascinating answers, which I will now read to you. Uh, This was the first guy. He said, well, I, I live in the dome of the type A dad. Isn't that good? And I said, who is outside your dome? And he said, and I quote, well, those on the outside are those handlebar mustachioed beta males who write angsty poetry. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. So those are the untouchables, right? Yeah, those are the untouchables. Then somebody else said, I live in the dome of the struggling middle class person where I'm a little resentful of poor people because I worked harder than them, or at least I assume I did. And like, I've really proven myself. And if they just had more drive, they could do that too. And, uh, but I also don't like rich people because I just assume that they're trust fund brats who, and so I'm the only, so they hate everybody basically, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's the dome of the cynical teenager, you know, there's just sort of down about everything. And didn't you go through a phase a little bit like that where you were, I was talking to this kid and he's like, well, I don't like the government. I'm like, okay. And he's like, you know, and then he was complaining about his parents and organized religion. And then he was like, ba- like bagging the establishment. I'm like, what do you mean by the establishment? And he's like, I don't really know. Uh, <laughs> like everybody's a, a phony. Everybody's a poser, that kind of thing. Except, except him, I guess. And then there's like the dome of healthy people. So some of you, I see you with the why. And, um, and like we're working out. But there are a lot of people that like, l- like to look in the mirror. Right. They, they love to stare at themselves. And and I know it's just for health reasons and not reasons of vanity. I know. But I'm like, I wonder who are the outsiders to them? And I was thinking about myself because I'm kind of an outsider to that culture. And I'm like, what does the outsider part of me want? I just want to eat Mike and Ike's all day and go to Burger King four times a week. And I um, and I want to be the reason why all of your health premiums are rising. I'm just saying like, the negative part of me kind of wants to, you know, give it to the world in that way. Uh, but then there's like the dome of the like well-informed intellectual, right? Out, outside of my zone and my expertise are these uninquisitive dolts who aren't, you know, plumbing the depths of knowledge. And if they did, they would like agree with me about everything, right? If they were smart enough, right? The point is we all have this, don't we? We all live in these little protectorates, these little domes uh, with their little laws. And why do we do this? Why do we like them? Why do we play this game? There's a reason. Because it makes us feel righteous. It makes us feel legitimate, and it makes us feel justified. 
St. Paul would call that justification by works. This is what we do and what we are by nature. We love these things. But you have to have Paul's epiphany. If you're going to be helped, you have to have Paul's epiphany, and it's this. Um, Paul realized as a Jew that he was just as tormented as any Gentile he had ever met. That he is no better. He realized this, and especially in the later years of his life, he became more self-effacing. And in one of his last epistles that he ever wrote, he called himself the chief of sinners. If you want to know who the worst human being in the world is, look at me and you will see him. But there's genius in that because that gave him compassion because he realized he wasn't better than all these Gentiles who had never, you know, said the word God. I think that's the only way we get out of our dome is we realize that the people in the other domes are just as broken as we are. And our dome doesn't keep us away from brokenness, that we, regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, single or married, poor or rich, smart or dumb, we are all dead in sin and need to be raised to new life. So that's the dome. And now let's think about the death of the dome. So Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that he outpoured on Pentecost demolishes our little domes, you know, in order to create the church. The church is the new man, this unified community that defies tribalistic tendencies and brings us together. The domes are crushed. <clears throat> now, I want to say very clearly that God has not abandoned all segregations or distinctions. There are many in the New Testament, many walls that God has built between things like sheep and goats, heaven and hell, good and evil, male and female. Even nations are not eradicated uh, in the New Covenant. Those things still exist. <clears throat> but some separations, many in fact, are dead. After the advent of Christ, they no longer prevent unity. We can all be together, even when we're different. We can all be together. This is why St. Paul writes in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. The markets don't keep you apart. Sociology doesn't keep you apart. Gender doesn't keep you apart. Hierarchy doesn't keep you apart. We're all interconnected. And we're all on the team. We are all chosen. Uh, <clears throat> so I uh, toured Dublin in 2005 Monique and I went to St. Patrick's Cathedral. It's an Anglican cathedral there. And we took a tour with a woman who had such a thick Irish accent that I didn't have any idea what she was talking about. But she was very nice. I remember that. Um, <clears throat> well, there was a, a story that was um, actually on the Charter House, which is attached to the cathedral. Um, and uh, it, it told a story of what happened in 1490, that there were two prominent families in Ireland, the Butlers and the Fitzgeralds. And they were in the midst of this very violent mafia-esque feud. And James Butler and his men, who were losing the battle, took refuge in the chapter house of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. Uh, the two families were killing each other right in front of the cathedral, but they were running into the chapter house, locked themselves in, bolted the doors, um, seeking protection from Fitzgerald. Well, here are two families living in the same country, members of the same religion, killing each other in front of a cathedral. Not a great scene. Well, as the siege wore on, Fitzgerald, on the outside of the chapter house, had a change of heart, and he decided to pound on the door, calling out for Butler, seeing if they could make peace. Butler thought it was a, a horrific ploy and probably an act of betrayal, and so he essentially told him no, in a very, <laughs> in a, uh, I'm sure in a very direct Irish way. Um, but eventually, uh, Fitzgerald lost his patience and took his spear and started stabbing the door over and over again until he finally cut a hole in the door. And so Fitzgerald on the outside of the chapter house looked in, saw the beleaguered 
family members of Butler, and put his whole arm through the door, through the hole in the door. And Butler, so amazed by this gesture and this vulnerability. After all, he could have taken care of that arm with an axe. Instead, he reached out and grabbed it. They shook hands. They then opened the door. And then they made a peace treaty. The feud ended. This act was memorably called, on a plaque right next to the hole in the door, which is still there, the chancing of the arm. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? The chancing of the arm. It made all the difference. Somebody broke the barrier. And this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. We have these barriers, and he breaks them down for our eternal well-being. St. Paul wants the end of needless barriers of hostility in our lives. Uh, And by the way, I don't think this has to begin romantically or grandly. If there is somebody in this church that you actively despise or that you are avoiding, um, I can help you tonight. I really can help you. I've studied a lot about this and prayed endlessly about what I'm about to t- about what I'm going to tell you about how to fix it. So here's what you do: um, you muster up the courage to walk up to that person and ask them this question: How are you? That's it. It really is it. Because if you ask somebody that in sincerity, they'll probably tell you. And when they tell you, you'll hear all sorts of things. Happy things and people minimizing their problems. And sometimes you'll hear pain laced through their words. And, but you'll begin to understand their humanity and see them for what they really are, which is a hurt, wounded, vexed, complicated, lovely person just like you. I guarantee you, if you ask that question and you really listen, you will hate them 50% less when you're done with that conversation. If you want to hate them even less than 50%, you should get them out for coffee. Yeah. So Aaron Cowan said something very funny to me after the service this morning. He said, this is very bad, Ethan, because now anytime somebody asks me, how are you? (laughs) Or do you want to get coffee? I'm just going to assume that they hate me thanks to you. (laughs) That's not what I mean. But the, the, the point is this, friends. You know, we, we're all outsiders. We, we never made it. We didn't win the prize. We didn't get the golden ticket. But God, in his grace, uh, fought through nature's night and captured our hearts and made us insiders and treats us like royalty. And that all happened because Christ loves you and Christ died for you and Christ cares about you. And also died for and cares about the person whom you're actively avoiding in order to make us all into a reconciled, everlasting family. God wills our unity. Christ died for our unity. So it's probably best to embrace that fact even now. It's probably best to engage in the chancing of the arm. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They could not take your breath.